Uh, good morning, everybody. Our scripture reading is from the Sermon on the Mount, the Lord's Prayer. Again, Jesus says in Matthew 6 and verse 9, Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, from the evil one. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. My name is Mike. I'm one of the pastors here, and it's uh, my joy uh, to speak to you this morning. We're going to be looking at the Lord's Prayer, specifically the last request there, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. But before we do that, let's pray, and then we'll jump in. Father, thank you for your faithfulness to us. You are a faithful, reliable, dependable God, and we see that when we wake up and we engage in your world. The faithfulness and the consistency of the sun rising and setting and the moon and the stars, the tides coming in and out, the seasons changing, it's all shouting that you are faithful. You are good and you are generous and providing for us day by day. And so we praise you for your great faithfulness. And most of all, we praise you for your great love, for God so loved the world in this way that he sent his one and only son that whoever believes in him might not perish but have everlasting life. We thank you for the gift of Jesus. And I pray that you'd help us to see him more clearly and to appreciate him and to believe him and trust him, whether for the first time or for the thousandth. Pray that this gathering would be useful for those ends, for our good and your honor. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, We're in this series called Kingdom Practices, and we're focusing on prayer. And Henry Nouwen said that kingdom practices are this idea of us kind of setting aside time and space so that we might be able to hear the loving voice of God the Father over us. It's a beautiful picture of what uh, it means to follow Jesus. We saw that in the life of Jesus himself, that as he was here on earth, he would regularly come away. He would spend time in prayer. He would speak to his Father, and his Father would speak to him. And he was reminded by his Father that his Father loved him. And that's what's actually happening here in the Lord's Prayer. You might be thinking, man, we're still in the Lord's Prayer? This is like, what, week six? It's like, that's kind of the point. We want it to become a practice. We want it to become a habit, a pattern, and that doesn't happen because you just heard it once. We're hopeful that because you heard it maybe six weeks in a row, basically, that there might be a little bit more of a pattern established in your heart. But specifically, the Lord's Prayer here is for us to to develop this kind of rhythm of prayer where we genuinely do experience the love of the Father. We honor Him, of course, in the first part of the Lord's Prayer, hallowed be Your name, Your kingdom come. But in those petitions, we see the loving heart of the Father for us, that He gives us daily bread, that He forgives us as we forgive others, and then here, as we'll see, the need that we have to be rescued, to be forgiven. This is the Father's love for us. And so, as I said, we're going to be focusing in on this last request, one of the great ways that God the Father loves us, and we learn to experience that is by praying this prayer. But Jesus says to pray, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. And so, this introduces, in a sense, maybe quite suddenly for us, if you're reading through there, it's like, whoa, now we're talking about the devil. And it's like, do we actually still believe in the devil I mean, come on. This is the 21st century, right? 
on the one hand. On the other hand, people are like, well, definitely. And so there seems to be kind of like this polarization regarding the devil or demons or evil spirits or angels, or you could even say just the unseen realm in general. Either there's this kind of doubt cast upon it, skepticism about it, or there's like this uh, fascination with it. C.S. Lewis wrote a book called The Screwtape Letters, and sometimes I just quote C.S. Lewis. I quote him a lot, and I might maybe take for granted who he was. He was a British academic literature professor at Oxford and Cambridge. So, you know, not the sharpest, no kidding. <laughs> Smart guy, okay? Was an atheist, and then over the course of his life became a theist, and then became a Christian, uh, and he was a lay leader in the Church of England. He was friends with J.R.R. Tolkien. He wrote the Screwtape Letters. He wrote the Chronicles of Narnia. He wrote many things. And in the beginning of this book, the Screwtape Letters, he has a quote about how we deal with this issue of the devils. But one quick thing about the Screwtape Letters that's interesting, I would recommend it to you to read. It's kind of this, it's fictional, but it's based on the reality of a, of a senior demon educating a younger demon how to trick Christians. It's actually a very fascinating read, especially when you consider the author of it wasn't, in a sense, just kind of simpleton, believe whatever type of a guy. And so at the, at the preface of that book, he says this, there are two equal and opposite errors into which the human race can fall about the devils. One is the disbelieving of their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They, speaking of the devils, are equally pleased by both errors. They hail a materialist or a magician with the same delight. I love that quote. So whether you're like super skeptical that that even might be a reality in our world, a materialist, or whether you're just into like the magic and the fascination of it all, either one, that's, that's an error. We want to have a realistic view about how to engage the actual evil that is in our world. And we won't get a realistic view of it unless we recognize, as we'll see in a few minutes, the personal spiritual nature of evil. Now, here's what I want to do this morning then. This is a sermon series on prayer and practices. And so here's the big idea. As disciples of Jesus, we are to regularly pray or practice prayer of deliverance from the evil one so that we will progressively see the light of the kingdom of God overcome the darkness that's in our lives and in our world. Let me say it again. We need to, Jesus taught us to pray this as his followers, as his apprentices, regularly for deliverance from evil so that little by little, progressively, we will see the light and the goodness and the glory and the majesty of his kingdom come into the darkness that is in our lives and in our world. And it won't happen unless we do pray this. So that's where we're going. That's what we're about this morning. I want to look at, I have actually four points, but I'm pretty sure I'm only going to get to three of them, so make sure you turn into certain plus. I want to look at the presence of evil in our lives, in our world. I want to, there's three things under that. And I want to look at the power of Jesus over evil. And then I want to look at how we actually pray this prayer. We practice that prayer and that's where we're going. That's our roadmap this morning, so let's dive in. The presence of evil in our lives and in our world. The, the problem of evil exists for both Christians and for the other end of the spectrum, so to speak, atheists. As a Christian, we believe that God is 100% good. And all God's people said, Amen. 
And we also believe that God is all-powerful. And all in your life, that's just like biochemical reality. It's an illusion. It's not actually good. And so they have a problem there in their worldview as well. The problem of evil is a problem for everybody. So how as Christians do we kind of get at this? Well, first is just there's a humble admission that we don't actually know how that first impulse, again, whether you think that's from Satan or the devil or Adam and Eve, we don't know where that first impulse, why would they even think to do something rebellious against such a good and glorious God? We don't actually know. But it happened. We can say more than that, though. That question circles around certainly some of the conversation of agency. Everyone say agency. Get your thinking cap on a little bit this morning. God created both spiritual beings, who we'll call angels, or we'll see in just a second, the sons of God, with agency, with a will, with freedom to choose, and human beings in the same breath, That doesn't actually answer the questions because your kids get old enough and they're going to say, well, why did God even let Adam and Eve have a choice? Great question. I don't know. (laughs) But there's something about human and spiritual beings having agency where at least the possibility of rebellion and evil existed there. And lo and behold, as we'll see in the stories of the Scripture, that's what happened. So I can't say everything about where evil came from but it is bound up to some degree in the sense that God created a world where there was agency from his creatures. Here's what we definitely can say about evil. A couple of things. First, we're going to say that God is good, as you just affirmed. In Genesis 1, God created everything, and the last verse says, and it was very good. And so whatever evil is, God didn't create it. In fact, evil doesn't exist on its own. Evil is the parasite of the good. So, for example, men and women were created in the image of God to worship God. That's the first of the Ten Commandments, to worship God and to worship Him alone. Well, idolatry is evil because it's the corruption of that. Instead of loving, trusting, and serving the one true and living God, I love, trust, and serve other created things. It's a corruption of the good. Selfishness is the corruption of love, and I could just go down the list. So, friends, evil exists, but it doesn't exist on its own. It didn't come from God. It's the corruption of all the goodness, beauty, truth, and wonder of God himself. That's what evil is. Now, some people might ask, what's the purpose of evil or suffering? Again, I would hasten to add, there's certainly a mystery about that. You know, you've probably run into, if you're old enough, some type of evil or suffering in your life, and you just said, why God? Why did this have to happen to me? And there's no like answer from the clouds on high. So we have to acknowledge, even as believers, that there, there's a level of mystery about why God would allow evil to exist. However, we can say a few things about why God would allow it to exist as well. First of all, we can say that God has purposes in it. We can say that, that whatever happens with evil, that in the end, that because evil, God allowed evil to exist, his glory won't be diminished, it will be expanded. We will think God is greater because he allowed evil to exist, because he overcomes and will eventually eradicate evil. And so the purpose, there is wisdom, or there is purposes that God has, even though we don't always understand them. And finally, we can say that 
whatever we say about God allowing evil into the world, we can't say that he doesn't care. Because God sent his one and only son in human form. And Jesus was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief and suffered to the point of death, even death on a cross. Psychological, physical, social, spiritual suffering and evil that Jesus experienced in his body on the tree. God became one of us to suffer with us. So we've looked at the problem of evil. We've looked at a little bit of the purpose for it. Of course, there's a lot more that could be said for those things. But today we want to talk about the personification of evil. Evil is not just events or actions or thoughts or feelings from human beings, but evil is actually expanded or you could say amplified in our world because personal spiritual beings exist that amplify the evil of our world. Now that's, that's quite a statement to make, and I'm aware of that. But this is what the scripture teaches us. There's a guy named Michael Heiser who written an excellent book on the unseen realm, probably the most thorough academic book I've seen on the subject. He says this about evil and spiritual beings' role in it. Pop up here in just a second. You guys got that Heiser quote? Thanks. Seeing the Bible through the eyes of an ancient reader requires the shedding of the filters of our traditions and presumptions. They process life in supernatural terms. Today's Christian processes it by a mixture of creedal statements and modern rationalism. I want to help you recover the supernatural worldview of the biblical writers, the people who produced the Bible. I don't actually love that word supernatural, if I could push back on that for a second. Yes, these spiritual beings are supernatural to us, but you guys should know that you're all supernatural. That's an encouraging thing to say, right? <laughs> you're supernatural. What, what do I mean by that? You're a miracle. Your consciousness, your, your very existence is a miracle. It's every bit as much as these spiritual beings. But that being said... The people that produced the Bible understood that these beings existed. And so I want to spend a couple of minutes looking at the development of how this goes in the Scriptures. That will make sense when we get to Jesus' prayer, why he would want us to regularly pray, be delivered from this type of evil. So the first thing that we note is that when God created the world, there were personal spiritual beings in like what you could call a heavenly council, cheering him on. So look at Job chapter 38. Where were you? This is Job. This is God speaking to Job, which by the way, the man has just been through incredible evil and suffering, right? So this is one of God's responses to Job. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched out the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? So God's asking Job a question. Were you there when I created the world and I laid the foundations and the seas and the skies? And the answer, of course, is no. So Job needs to be careful about judging God as the idea. But here, then he says, when the sons of God, 
which is a reference to spiritual beings, were clapping. It's like when God made the sea, they were like, whoa, good job, Lord. And then it's like, here's a dry land. Whoa, plants, you know. They're shouting for joy. These beings existed. You know, we were taught to pray, Lord, your kingdom come in heaven as on earth. Basically, what God has done is he created beings to live, exist in the spiritual realm, just like he created us, embodied spirits, to live in the physical realm. And those two realms are coming together. That's who these angels are. They existed in that spiritual realm. And they exist, theologians say, they they excel us in wisdom, power, and glory, but they were created to serve us. Hebrews chapter 1 says that they're ministering spirits. Now, sometimes we think of a, a servant as someone who's kind of lowly and doesn't have a lot of power. You should think of these beings as having like a lot of power, like a prime minister type power. God gave them strength and honor and glory to be able to serve his purposes in the nations of the world. You say, well, where do you get that from? Glad you asked. Deuteronomy chapter 32. Deuteronomy 32. Remember the days of old. Consider the years of many generations. Ask your father, and he will show you. Your elders, and they will tell you. When the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance... When he divided mankind, he fixed the borders of the people according to the number of the sons of God. Same group that was there cheering on creation. God divided the nations among their inheritance and said, this is the plot that you can have, and now I'm commissioning these particular angelic beings to serve my purposes in that city or in that nation. So let me, you know, let me simplify this. That still exists today. There are spiritual forces and powers at play in every nation of the world. You can look at Daniel chapter 9, Daniel chapter 10. One of them is identified there as the, the prince over Persia. The Lord, he says here, he's kind of in charge of Israel. He's like, I'll take that one. Michael is also involved with Israel. So then what happened, though, is some of these sons of God, the divine heavenly council, you could call them, who were commissioned by God to serve his purposes in the world, they rebelled. The chief among them we know as Satan, the devil. But a host of these rebelled, And so then what happens is is their accountability over these, and their influence over these cities and nations amplified and multiplied the sin and the rebellion that's in the world. Because now you have the spiritual realm in rebellion, and then with Adam and Eve rebelling, you have the natural mortal realm in rebellion. It's like gas in a lighter, and God's world is filled with evil. And it's like if you've lived long enough, you shake your head and go, yeah, mm -hmm, I see that. So real, personal, spiritual evil exists in the world and those realities and powers at play affect our lives whether we recognize it or not every day. I've mentioned already, chief among them, Jesus calls him here the evil one in the Sermon on the Mount. But he's called the Satan. Satan's actually not a name, it's a title. It means the adversary. These spiritual forces of evil are adversarial 
to God's will and God's kingdom. That's what they're doing consistently. Anything that would be good, noble, and true that God would want to bring on the earth, righteousness, justice, and peace, these angelic beings are opposed to it. He's also called the devil, which means the slanderer, which means one of his primary functions in the world is to slander the name of God. God is not good, God is not present, why would God do this? And he slanders the name of God all over the world. This is the function and the role of evil, to thwart the good will of God and to thwart the good character of God. And that's what these forces of evil do all over the world. So what am I saying? I'm saying that true evil exists in our world. It harms us, corrupts us, breaks us, leads us to death and judgment. This evil multiplies and amplifies the evil that's in the world. And so you might be thinking, seriously, you actually believe this, Mike? Like, didn't you go to school? <laughs> yes. Let me, give you, let me give you the reasons why I believe in these beings. First is super simple. If I believe in God, who's a benevolent spirit of good, <laughs> then it's not a stretch for me to believe that there might be spirits that are evil. That's easy. <laughs> However, even if someone doesn't believe in God, I would propose to them the reason I would is when I look at the evil and the wickedness that's in this world, there has to be something deeper and more at play than just human evil. There's just too much. It's too gross. It's too heinous. It's too corrupt. There's something amplifying our evil. My experience, personally, in temptation, like where is this coming from? My experience with friends and loved ones who have had encounters as well with this unseen realm. I've just had too many experiences of evil. Another reason why I believe is that this makes better, as I just kind of intimated there, it just makes more sense. It's a more nuanced understanding of the, it makes better sense of the world in which I live. It's not simply that evil doesn't exist. No, it definitely exists. And it's not just human, it's exponential, it's amplified, it's multiplied, that makes sense. And so I have a, a multi-layered approach. I can understand on the one hand that there's human evil, but I can also understand that there's another layer involved as well. Let me give you just a couple of examples of how this works in the Bible, I'll show you this. So let's talk about marital infidelity. <laughs> Hard left turn. When we think about that, that's wrong, that's a sin. And we would rightly blame the person who is unfaithful, right? Sorry. Look at how 1 Corinthians 7, Paul says this. Don't deprive one another except by perhaps, a, perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer. He's talking about coming together sexually as a married couple. But then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Whoa. All of a sudden... There's spiritual, personal forces of evil that are set on thwarting. They are adversarial to the good purposes of God's design for your marriage. I think you should know that. There's a human layer, and there's a spiritual layer. Let's talk about church, since you're here. Good job. Look at this in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. And no wonder... For even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. 
So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness, their end will correspond to their deeds. <laughs> this always makes me feel a little awkward as a minister of quote-unquote righteousness. I don't want to be that guy. And the implication here is, is that you just can't go to anyone who says that they're a follower of Jesus because Satan and spiritual forces of evil would try to trick you that they would look like ministers of light. Hello. That makes sense to me. Let's talk about anger. I picked these examples because they're seemingly so random. They're not connected seemingly at all to each other. Be angry and don't sin. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. And give no opportunity to the devil. The idea is don't, don't give a foothold to the devil. Satan's influence and power can enter into my family or into a church when people lose control of their anger. It's not just a human thing. There's a spiritual thing going on there. And so, friends... This makes sense then that, you know, it's actually on like the third page of the Bible. The biblical understanding of where evil came from in our world is that both in the spiritual realm with power and influence and in the physical realm, the human realm, both of these creatures rebelled against God. In Genesis chapter 3, Satan comes and tempts Adam and Eve. He's in rebellion. They go into rebellion. And when God comes to fix the situation, what does he do? He addresses the human beings. They can't say, well, the devil made me do it. Eve tried that. God judged her anyway. Adam as well. And then he also judges the serpent. He holds both groups accountable for their actions. This is the evil we face in the world. There is real, personal, spiritual evil at work in our world and seemingly the most mundane things of our lives. And so it's no accident that Jesus teaches us to pray then, regularly deliver us from this evil. Get to that in a second. In that third page of the Bible, when God judges the serpent, the devil, he makes a promise that one of the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. This prophecy is made that, that one day a king would come who would undo all of the effects that this spiritual evil introduced into God's good world. And so this is the second point of the sermon. We are definitely not getting to point four. <laughs> the power of King Jesus over evil. <laughs> when Jesus comes onto the scene, this is one of the reasons why I love the fact that this type of that it's not just human evil, because it means that we're not the enemies of God. When Jesus came into the world to save the world, who was his main target? Who was his main enemy? It was the devil. He was baptized there, the beginning of his ministry, the heavens opened up, and God says, this is my son, this is the Messiah, in whom I am well pleased, and then the Spirit drives him into the wilderness, and he's tempted and tested by the devil for 40 days fasting, and he overcomes the devil, and the devil flees from him. Jesus then begins his ministry, and he starts going through all of Israel, casting out demons left and right, saying that I'm the king, evil has been put on notice, it's going to be conquered. 
And then Satan comes back to him right at the very end, right before the cross, to try to dissuade him from going to the cross. And he prays, don't pray that you don't enter into temptation, he says. The same thing that he teaches us here to his disciples. They don't pray. They do enter into temptation. He does pray. He passes that temptation. He goes to the cross, and he conquers sin, death, and hell at the cross and his resurrection. Let's go. And now, because he has done that, how do we get in on the experience of his victory? You pray. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. This quote, probably one of my favorites from James Stewart. If there throbs through the church the vitality of a living union with Christ, and apart from this, the church has no claim to exist, no right to preach, it's merely cumbering the ground. If we're not united with Christ, what are we even doing? If the church can indeed say, it is not I who live, it is Christ who lives in me, then the dark, demonic forces of the age have met their match, and the thrust of life is stronger than the drift of death. You want to know what Jesus is doing? Remember all those nations, you know, all those rebellious sons of God scattered throughout all the nations? We, we, you know, we have our mission partners right now. The message of King Jesus is going to all those nations and saying, you've been conquered. The king is risen from the dead. All the hard, difficult, the, the worst things that could possibly threaten your life and the life of the people you love have been conquered by Jesus Christ. And so then we learn to pray. We learn to pray, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. There's another quote here about prayer. When you, when you learn to pray this way, praying this way, lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from evil, is our invitation into the participation of the victory of Jesus. Do you, do you really want to see your life experience the kingdom of God, righteousness, joy, and peace? Do you want to experience this Jesus movement where he is making all things new? That is not going to happen uncontested. It's going to be contested. And so because it's going to be contested between the resurrection of Jesus and the return of Jesus, the prayer of Jesus here to set aside time and space so that we can remember who Jesus is and what he's accomplished for us. To pray this is the way that you break through the barriers of evil that are in your life, and not just your life, but we pray for one another. Do you want to see those things broken down in other people's life? Then pray. And, you know, God is interested in spiritual formation not in him being our cosmic genie. And so you say, man, I might have prayed. Okay. Well, Jesus says there's some stuff that only gets happened when you pray fervently. Some, some uh, translations say prayer and fasting. Some things only happen when you enlist other people in the household of faith to pray. Have you tried that? And so, you know, we're fighting a battle. He's already won. Amen. You get in the battle 
by setting aside time and space to pray the Lord's Prayer for yourself and for others that they would not be led into temptation but be delivered from the evil one. So what is it like? Greed, lust, fear, anxiety, depression, healing. There's all of these things that you could pray for, right? This prayer is a prayer that in a sense... Not that we're trying to be like hockey or arrogant or anything like that, but we are certainly not afraid of the darkness. You go right up to the darkness and you say, Lord, help me not to enter in, but help me to push it back. Because of what Jesus has done. And sometimes, sometimes that evil does push back. And Revelation says that some people conquered by, because they didn't love their lives even to the point of death. Because Jesus rose from the dead, even death itself is nothing more than a gateway to glory for the believer in Jesus. So friends, we need to learn to pray. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. You know, we've talked about this three times a, a day thing. Wake up in the morning, this is what I've been doing. It's like, I, I, this morning, I wake up and the first thing that pops in my mind is our Father who is in heaven. <laughs> it's crazy. That's formation. Our Father in heaven, pray it right away. Pray it throughout the day. Teach my song to rise to you when temptation comes my way. You could, before the morning, you could plot your day out. Man, I'm going to have this meeting with this guy, and I know that's going to be tempting. <laughs> Pray. Sometimes it pops on you. If you've immersed yourself, you become the kind of person who lives in the Lord's prayer, so to speak, then your song rises, your prayer rises. Lord, lead me not. That idea of lead me not is incline my heart away from evil. Not that God would tempt you to evil, but he doesn't want you to enter into it. Lord, incline my heart away from that. The internal evil and darkness that I deal with, and then the external, deliver me through it. 1 Corinthians 10 that says that there's no temptation that's taken you, but such is common to man, and God will make a way. Here's a couple of the ways that he might show you. In the end here, you couple prayer with some of the other practices. So prayer itself is the, is the practice that brings the power of Christ to our temptations. But fasting, as we'll talk about next week, teaches the body to say no to something good, which helps it say no to something bad. So it kind of trains you. So, you know, maybe you're, you're dealing with lust or something like that, and you say, you know, you're giving in to these urges. It's like, well, you're gluttony, something like that. It's like when you learn to fast, you say no to something good, you're strengthened along with prayer to say no to the bad things. Solitude or Sabbath. Man, I, I feel the rattle of the snake and the hiss of the serpent now in my distractedness. I used to think, even this week, it's just my problem. No, there's something else going on there with how distracted I feel like I can get. It's like, what do I need? I need the practice of solitude. Shut all the stuff down so that I can just be with the Lord. And I come out of that strengthened to deal with the distractions again. See how prayer coupled with other practices generosity maybe you struggle with contentedness or greed it's like well just start giving your money away to causes of jesus just do it and that will push back on your greed and it will learn and it'll teach you to be content you don't have to have this other thing give the money to jesus so friends one day the lord's prayer will become the lord's praise our Father, we will know him as even as we are known. 
The glory and the holiness of Jesus will cover, the scripture says, Isaiah says, that it will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. His kingdom will be here in full. It will be on earth as it is in heaven. That day is coming. A day when we need to pray for provision is not, is, is, it's not that much longer. All the needs will be met. All the forgiveness and reconciliation will be made. And the devil and the, the, ain't, the demonic forces will all be eradicated. That day is coming. And until that day, we pray, our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts as we forgive those who are indebted to us. And lead us not into temptation. Forgive us as we forgive those who sin against us and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Father, do it please. Help us to learn to pray this way for your glory. Amen.